Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Gossip Girls. The desire of people to tell a story that is the dream of which my town was built. <laughs> oh, what a spot to be in. There are two of them in town. Now, it isn't Luella Parsons, is it? Must be Miss Hedda Hopper. What about public insults? Did you ever suffer at the hands of the old Crocs, Lolly, and Hedda? Hollywood's best-known, best-loved, most distinguished reporter. Movie news from both Hollywood and New York. And that dream will remain forever. We've mentioned before that both Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper built their careers as single mothers. Today, we're going to talk about what they were like as mothers, and specifically, how one of them spawned perhaps the most accomplished female film producer of the 1940s and 50s. Harriet Parsons started and finished her career as a writer or ghostwriter of her mother's column. But in between, she produced several major movies and brought about a rare truce between Luella Parsons and Harriet's unlikely ally, Hedda Hopper. Hopper had her own offspring, who followed her into the entertainment industry, her son, Bill, who would eventually co-star for nearly 10 years on the original Perry Mason TV series. But as we'll see, 
while Hedda had no problem publicly supporting the child of her rival, her maternal performance with her own son left something to be desired. Join us, won't you, for part five of Gossip Girls, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Harriet Parsons never really knew her father, who was out of the picture by the time she could talk. While her mother was working, she was taken care of by Luella's mother, Helen. Harriet made her movie debut in 1912 in a film written by her mom called Margaret's Awakening. Billed as Baby Parsons, Harriet played a spunky six-year-old who slips out of the grasp of her caretakers. In her second film, called The Magic Wand, Harriet played a little girl who seeks supernatural solutions to her mother's financial problems. After that, Luella decided to send her daughter to elementary school, and Harriet's on-camera career came to an end. Though Luella kept her marital and romantic life out of her public persona, at least until she married Harry Martin, Harriet was a useful character for Luella to reference in her early days as a columnist. When Parsons was part of the national discourse about censorship and strenuously defending Hollywood from charges that the movies were a bad influence. She suggested that parents watch movies themselves before they take their children. When Harriet was 10, Luella wrote that she would not allow her own daughter to see any film, which Luella herself had not watched first, to make sure there was nothing in it that a child shouldn't see. This was masterful. It both implied that parents were more than capable of doing their own censoring, so there was no need for the government to step in, and that every parent should see every movie twice. When Luella lost her job in Chicago and moved to New York, she enrolled Harriet in a prestigious private school. At one point, mother and daughter were living at the Algonquin Hotel. This was during the early 1920s, during the peak of the Algonquin roundtable scene, featuring literary lights such as Dorothy Parker and New Yorker editor Harold Ross. Harriet's mom was on a somewhat different wavelength, she was not an intellectual, and she could be a rowdy drunk. And she heavily implied in her columns that the round table had snubbed her. When Harriet went away to college at Wellesley, she came home to the Algonquin on school breaks to try to rein Luella in. One Algonquin wit joked in Life magazine that Luella's daughter is her mother. Harriet, a good student who was an active athlete and campus journalist, was forced to take a longer hiatus from college when her mother became deathly ill with tuberculosis. On William Randolph Hearst's dime, Harriet was pulled out of school and brought to the California desert to oversee her mother's year-long recovery. Harriet would later remember her and Luella's period in the desert as, quote, our worst time. Harriet managed to make it back to Wellesley, where she directed the school play 
And after graduating in 1927, she briefly joined the writing staff at MGM before finding longer-lived employment at Photoplay, the most sophisticated movie fan magazine of the era. Based in New York City, with a continent between her and her mother, Harriet tried to carve out her own identity. But then, in 1934, Harriet faced a perilous bout with pneumonia. At Luella's urging, she moved to Los Angeles and moved in with Luella and Harry Martin. While building up her own career as a reporter, Harriet would take over Luella's column when her mom went on vacation or needed to focus her attention on her radio show. Harriet didn't love the position her mother's codependency put her in. As Harriet once said, for someone as independent as I was, it didn't massage the ego to be forced to come to Hollywood. I disliked it greatly. I never intended to stay. But once sucked back into the Hollywood vortex and her mother's web, Harriet couldn't escape. Luella couldn't stop herself from trying to fix Harriet up, both professionally and personally. In the early 1930s, Luella arranged a relationship between her 24-year-old daughter and a young actor named Eddie Woods. There was an engagement, but eventually Harriet called things off. At 25, Harriet may have been nearing old maid territory, but she wasn't sure she wanted to marry any man. Privately, she identified as a lesbian. Luella considered it a major part of her job to cover up any aspects of any person in Hollywood's private life that could draw criticism from the largely Catholic groups who were constantly calling for cinematic censorship. So it was second nature to her to protect her daughter's sexual identity. But it was not an easy time or place to be a woman who loved women. The few photographs of young Harriet that survive show a friendly-looking lady with an easy smile, but a sadness behind her eyes. By 1934, Harriet had spent most of her adult life in her mother's shadow. Now, at 28, she shifted gears, taking a job at Columbia Pictures, working on a series of short documentaries about Hollywood called Screen Snapshots. These short films, packaged in the style of newsreels, would likewise run in movie theaters before the feature. Columbia was run by Harry Cohn, who is not usually remembered as a friend to women in Hollywood. In fact, he has a reputation as one of the most lecherous of the studio execs of his era. But Cohn actually hired quite a few women to work in production, particularly in the 1940s, after Harriet's tenure there. The problem was that none of these women had the power to get the kind of credit they deserved for their work. Someone like Eve Edinger, who ran Columbia's script department in the 1940s, never saw her name on a film print. Neither did Helen Deutsch, who produced two Columbia films, including Sam Fuller's Shockproof, with no on-screen credit. Virginia Van Upp played a major role in producing the films that made Rita Hayworth a star, 
But the only major film on which she was given a producer's credit was Gilda. Though Harriet would enjoy the freedom to write, direct, produce, and edit her own films under the auspices of Columbia, she was never allowed to take screen credit for any of this labor. The dozens of screen snapshots she wrote and directed were instead credited to the male director, Ralph Staub. Columbia had been producing this series for a dozen years before Harriet was hired, so it wasn't like she created the format, which was essentially derivative anyway. But it says something that even a self-admitted beneficiary of nepotism wasn't able to get proper credit for their labor in Hollywood at this time. According to Harriet, her family name hurt her rather than helped her. I could always get my foot in the door through mother, she said, but then I had to work twice as hard. I had two strikes against me. I was the woman behind the camera at a time when there were none, and I was Luella's daughter. It's not entirely true that there were no women behind the camera when Harriet was directing short films, but the only woman who was getting credit for directing feature films in the 1930s was Dorothy Arzner, who, like Harriet, was what today we would refer to as queer. But Arzner was anomalous in many ways in 1930s Hollywood. Not only did no one try to hide her creative impact, but also no one asked her to hide her sexuality. She lived openly with her long-term female partner and appeared in public wearing men's suits. She had the confidence to rock her own personal style and made no attempt to conform to the heteronormative standards of femininity at the time. Even with the helping hand of her mother, Harriet clearly didn't feel she had the same kind of freedom. If anything, being the daughter of Luella Parsons made Harriet feel more pressure. She wasn't free to live her personal life openly, and she felt bound to expectations governing quote-unquote feminine behavior. And yet, instead of going along to get along, Harriet Parsons drew attention to the double standards for women in Hollywood and in the workplace, and advocated that women use those double standards and unrealistic expectations to their advantage. I don't approve of mannish, masterful women, and I think men resent them in business, Harriet said once she had gotten her own foothold. It has been my experience that men prefer dealing with women who allow them to open doors for them. Men like being gallant. It satisfies their ego. Certainly, giving public statements like this was good politics, both for a woman who wanted to work and needed men to think she wouldn't be a pain in the ass if they hired her, and for a woman who didn't want anyone asking questions about whether or not she cared about male egos in her personal life. But after six years went by and she was still fighting to get her name listed on her work, she began looking for other opportunities. She left Columbia for a job at Republic. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Columbia had started as a marginal outfit on what was known as Poverty Row, but by 1940 was almost at the same level as the top flight studios such as MGM. Republic had been formed in 1945 as a consolidation of several independent Poverty Row companies, making the new studio the biggest fish in Hollywood's less desirable pond. Republic would soon become a significant entity thanks to John Wayne. But when Harriet joined the outfit, they were still churning out quickies with titles like Should Husbands Work? and Village Barn Dance. Republic initially hired Harriet to make exactly the same kinds of films she had been making at Columbia, except now the series was called Meet the Stars instead of Screen Snapshots. But Republic was willing to offer Harriet full credit for the work she had been doing for years, anonymously. In the Meet the Stars shorts, she even appeared on camera, dressed glamorously, and narrated the action with remarkable, casual ease. The only of these shorts to make it on YouTube as of this writing documents the visits of a few Hollywood stars to a Long Beach naval base. Say, that chap on the running board looks vaguely familiar. Well, no wonder, it's Henry Fonda. Hank's only a visitor, but he looks right at home in those work clothes. Ordinarily, a crew of two can gas and oil one of these training planes in five minutes. Of course, with a beginner like Hank on the team, we'll have to allow a slight handicap. He probably doesn't even know where to start. Well, oil my roller skates. We did the boy an injustice. He's going at this like a veteran. In what would turn out to be her final Meet the Stars short, Harriet focused on Mabel Norman, 
the pioneering silent film comedian, director, and producer. She was then promoted to associate producer with the promise that she'd work on feature films. Harriet believed she had only been hired at Columbia because Harry Cohn believed her mother would subsequently treat his studio's films and stars more kindly in her columns. It's difficult to assess whether or not Cohn got what he was looking for, but now that Harriet was at Republic and being treated there with the respect her mother felt she deserved, Luella did her part. Republic is getting the best talent in the country and spending real money, Luella wrote in 1941. So much so that I want to again go on record as saying this company has made the greatest progress of any studio in Hollywood in the last year. Of course, the most progressive thing Republic had done in the previous year was make Harriet Parsons a producer. She did receive credit on the Nazi spy comedy Joan of Ozark in 1942. But after promising Harriet a chance to develop her own feature, the Republic bosses took the idea she pitched and assigned it to a male producer. It was always the same old story, Harriet said. The studio head wanted to get in good with Luella, but didn't trust me because I was a woman. In either 1939 or 1940, reports vary, Harriet married a guy named King Kennedy, a sometime actor and writer who would occasionally work as a freelance reporter for Luella. Very little has gone on the record about Kennedy or his work, but his name is included in a number of records of LGBTQ Hollywood figures of the past. A union between two queer people who wanted to give the public impression that they were straight used to be called a marriage of convenience. One observer snarked that Harriet's marriage to King Kennedy was, quote, truly a marriage of Luella's convenience. Harriet's marriage to Kennedy lasted six years, at least on paper, but apparently both husband and wife carried on relationships with other people throughout. We don't know much about who Harriet was involved with, but there is a photograph of her in the Academy's collection taken in 1945. She's posed with the Hollywood Reporter columnist Raddy Harris and both are wearing evening gowns. And the best way I can describe this photograph is that it has a vibe. There are also reports that Harriet lived with Lynn Bowers, a publicist who, like King Kennedy, helped Luella gather news for her columns. By the time Harriet married King Kennedy, Luella's politics had been pushing to the right for nearly a decade. The fact that her daughter was living a double life on the down low didn't do anything to make Luella more liberal. And it didn't make Harriet politically liberal either. As Luella became increasingly involved in Republican activism, Harriet was right at her side. Both mother and daughter hated FDR and vigorously campaigned against Roosevelt and for his 1944 challenger Thomas Dewey, alongside the whole crew of Hollywood conservatives, including Ginger Rogers and Joel McCrea. 
Neither political party was in favor of gay rights at this point in history. So Harriet's sex life couldn't have driven her voting habits in any real public way. It would have been unthinkable for either Harriet or Luella to advocate for Harriet's civil rights publicly. But in encouraging Harriet to marry a gay man, Luella was acting privately. Just as Luella spent her career drawing attention to stories that would promote the film industry while drawing attention away from the stories that could kill it, with Harriet's marriage, she created a story that would draw attention away from her daughter's actual personal life so that Harriet could be free to live that life, free of scrutiny. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Six months after the release of Citizen Kane and Luella Parson's strategic campaign against that film, its studio, RKO, hired Harriet Parsons as a writer-producer. During that half a year, Luella had blacklisted RKO from her column. But now, she proudly wrote up a mention of where her favorite producer was parking her typewriter. Harriet planned to use that typewriter on an adaptation of the 1923 play The Enchanted Cottage which Harriet saw as ripe for an update. She envisioned the film as a vehicle through which she could explore the lasting impact of war on returning soldiers, something Harriet was ahead of the curve on, given that World War II was in full swing when she began developing the movie. But history repeated itself. After she pitched her take on the adaptation, RKO took the movie away from her and gave it to established writer-producer Dudley Nichols, whose long list of hits included Bringing Up Baby and Stagecoach. Then Harriet tried to adapt Mama's Bank Account, a book by Catherine Forbes, lightly fictionalizing the experiences of her Norwegian grandmother, who emigrated to San Francisco in the 1910s. But before she could get anywhere with it, Rogers and Hammerstein snatched up the adaptation rights, turning Forbes' stories into the hit musical, 
I Remember Mama. Just when it looked like Harriet's career as a producer was doomed, she got an assist from an unlikely source, Hedda Hopper. For all of her reactionary and, frankly, bad politics, Hopper was at least consistent in arguing that women had a right to pursue careers. And she was especially strong as an advocate for women working in filmmaking. All of Luella's nepotistic nudges couldn't accomplish what Hedda did by writing this in her column on February 21st, 1944. What goes on at RKO with Harriet Parsons? The studio assigned her as a producer. She digs through its files and finds the enchanted cottage. Then it's snatched away and given to a big writer-producer. Then she digs up Mama's bank account. Now that, too, has been snatched away from her. What goes on? Harriet's clever, and I think this is pretty shabby treatment, even for Hollywood. This was a shocking enough turn of events that RKO caved, returning the enchanted cottage to Harriet and ultimately allowing her to produce the film of I Remember Mama once the Broadway show had run its course. To write both adaptations, Harriet chose DeWitt Bodine, an RKO staff member who would pen a number of soon-to-be classic Val Luton horror films, including Cat People, The Curse of the Cat People, and The Seventh Victim. These movies were all about thorny social issues lurking just under the surface of the American facade. Seventh Victim, in particular, has been cited by later film theorists for its subversively sympathetic treatment of repressed lesbian love. Baudine, who later became a film historian, writing, amongst other things, a book about the murder of bisexual director William Desmond Taylor, was also gay. He and Harriet, close friends, worked together to infuse this play about the marriage of convenience between an unattractive woman and a scarred veteran with their own feelings and frustrations. The script was then polished by Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz. Harriet was credited as the producer of The Enchanted Cottage, the first feature on which she received such credit. But even then, a powerful man tried to take the accomplishment away from her. Luella had intervened in the project by sweet-talking David O. Selznick into letting Harriet cast Dorothy McGuire, who Selznick had under contract. After The Enchanted Cottage opened and became a modest box office hit, Selznick felt that his contribution had been short-shrifted, and he wrote a memo to one of his publicists besieging her to help him get his story out there. That memo read in part, I talked Miss McGuire into taking the part. I made drastic changes in the treatment and made key suggestions, including the whole idea of the composition, which is the framework of the film. I made editing suggestions. In short, I really acted as executive producer of the film. All of these gestures are wasted if Luella doesn't even know about it. I want her to know the extent of what I did, some of which Harriet doesn't even know about. This is really something. 
Selznick was suggesting he knew more about how this movie was made than its female producer. And he wanted his publicist to call that producer's mother to get her to write about how her daughter's hit movie wouldn't have happened without him. He also essentially says that nothing is worth doing if Luella Parsons doesn't know or write about it. The Enchanted Cottage may be the most important movie Harriet Parsons produced, given that it was the feature on which she proved herself. And her most famous is probably Clash by Night, directed by Fritz Lang, which gave Marilyn Monroe one of her first dramatic roles. But I think her most interesting film is probably her least known. Night Song, another collaboration between Parsons and Bodine, made in 1947, directed by John Cromwell and starring Dana Andrews and Merle Oberon. Oberon plays a bored, music-loving heiress who falls in love with a blind composer-turned-roadhouse piano player. The story takes several twists and turns, which I won't spoil, although it's worth noting that the whole thing is clearly intended as a showcase for a beautiful symphonic composition performed by Arthur Rubinstein, who plays himself. As the central romance becomes more complicated, both Andrews and Oberon find themselves playing dual roles of sorts, and the movie becomes a dreamlike contemplation of the divided self. The conundrum of pretending to be something you're not and then losing track of the line between the performance and your real self is something Oberon clearly understood. If you listened to our series Make Me Over last year, you may remember that Oberon spent her entire Hollywood career trying to hide her Indian heritage. And it's also something producer Harriet and writer Bodine were familiar with as well. Harriet often spoke frankly about the challenges of being one of the few female producers the film industry had ever seen. But she had also picked up from her mother the idea that if you protect the industry, the industry will protect you. She was careful to avoid airing her problems with the institutions of Hollywood. But that meant that when asked to account for the lack of women in management or roles like director or producer, in order to protect the power structure, she'd sometimes end up throwing other women under the bus. There's no resentment, no opposition to women producers in Hollywood, Parsons told the New York Evening Post shortly after she produced her first feature, adding, it's the women themselves who, for the most part, prefer other jobs in the industry. They're scared of the headaches involved. Even if it was true that women in Hollywood preferred other jobs, or that they were scared of the headaches involved with producing, neither of which can be verified either way, the fact that this female producer felt the need to misdirect away from the issue of sexism in the industry says more about sexism in the industry than if she had actually dared to say something about sexism in the industry, rather than just practicing it. When I Remember Mama was released in 1948, both Luella and Hedda wrote rapturously about Harriet's accomplishments. Hedda's praise of Luella's daughter was conspicuous, 
and all of Hollywood took notice. Honestly, Hedda, it stirred great tears of joy as I read how fairly and how genuinely you revere Harriet, Ginger Rogers wrote to Hopper. I hardly know the young lady in question, but this I do know that it could be a very easy matter to dismiss the subject of the opposition's daughter. Harriet was so honored by Hopper's continued support of her career that she decided to play peacemaker between her mom and her mom's rival. At her daughter's urging, Luella called Hedda and invited her to lunch at Romanoff's. Hedda accepted. Luella couldn't have picked a more public locale. The setting suggests both women saw this as a publicity stunt, rather than a real reunion of two old friends turned enemies. It also seems likely that they both knew that giving the impression of hating one another was good for both of their bottom lines. Their noontime tete-a-tete drew an expected crowd of gawkers and other columnists, who treated the meeting like it represented a thaw in the true Cold War. As one put it, if these two could dine together, surely the world is big enough for us and the Russians. And Collier's magazine compared the pair to Truman and Stalin. Like their international counterparts, Hedda and Luella did not make a habit of communing, the lunch was a one-time thing. But Hedda continued to be friendly with Harriet, in real life as well as in her column. Hedda arguably had an easier relationship with Luella's daughter than with her own son. William Hopper was born in 1915, and he entered the family business as an adolescent, appearing in Pasadena Playhouse Productions, and in films under the name Wolf Hopper. He got a few leading man parts in the late 1930s and then played bit roles in big movies like Stagecoach and The Maltese Falcon. He worked, but he didn't seem to care about being a star. I became an actor, he said, because it seemed the easiest thing to do and because it was expected of me. Bill, as he preferred to be called, felt that he had been pushed into the business by Hedda, and he resented her for it. By the time Bill was in his mid-twenties, he felt it was time to break away. He signed up with the Coast Guard in 1942 and eventually joined the war effort as part of an underwater demolition team. He later said it was the only thing he ever did that seemed to make his mom happy which flies in the face of Hedda's public stance, that she was against World War II because she was the mother of a son. Bill and Hedda were never close, and his recollections of her suggest that she was uninterested in mustering conventional maternal affection. She was almost too intimate with him. Bill recalled that before his wedding, his mother gave him the following advice. For God's sake, don't take your wife by force, like your father did. Skip McClure, one of Hedda's reporters, suggested that Bill shouldn't take it personally, because Hedda was like that with everyone. According to McClure, quote, 
she lacked the capacity for either deeply loving or being loved. What she was capable of was trying to micromanage Bill's life. And after a certain point, this led him to resist most of her attempts to help him. After the war, Bill became a used car salesman. When Hedda offered to help him by buying him a used car lot, he refused. He was tired of his famous mother putting her thumb on the scale of his life. Bill ended up returning to acting when William Wellman called him to play a small part in the 1954 Western, The High and Mighty. One thing led to another, and Bill ended up working steadily for the next dozen years, playing Natalie Wood's father in Rebel Without a Cause, before landing the role of police detective Paul Drake on the original Perry Mason TV series. Hedda dedicated her book, The Whole Truth and Nothing But, to Bill, writing, To my son, Bill, who never took any sass from his mother and never gave her any. Given that Hedda Hopper's whole life was giving and taking sass, this feels like somewhat of a backhanded dedication. Harriet Parsons would successfully produce a total of seven features at RKO. Several of her movies starred Barbara Stanwyck or Irene Dunn, aging ingenues who had risen to fame during Harriet's mother's most powerful period, who shared Harriet and Luella's conservative politics. In 1956, Newsweek ran a feature saluting Harriet as Hollywood's lone active woman producer. This wasn't actually true. Joan Harrison, who had long worked with Alfred Hitchcock, was producing his TV show at the time. But Harriet was the only woman amongst the 140 members of the Screen Producers Guild. Harriet's time at RKO came to an end after she clashed with the then-owner of the studio, Howard Hughes. I first became aware of Harriet's producing career five years ago, when I was doing research on Hughes for my book, Seduction, and I came across an angry letter Harriet had sent Hughes in 1953. This was when Hughes's pet project was a musical called The French Line, in which Jane Russell played an heiress looking for love on a cruise ship. Hughes saw the movie as an opportunity to capitalize on the success of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which Russell had appeared in on Loan Out to another studio. Hughes was so concerned with trying to cash in by copying that Howard Hawks film that he apparently hadn't noticed that producing the French line would render another project, already in the works at RKO, totally redundant. Harriet had been developing a film called Size 12, a movie which was to include a female fashion designer and a male fashion businessman, character types which also appeared in the French line. At the end of her rope, Harriet put all of her frustrations in one searing missive. She wrote, Since it seems to be impossible for me to see you or talk to you on the phone, and since there is no one else in authority at RKO to whom I can talk to, and since my repeated attempts to talk to you 
during the past three months have resulted only in repeated assurances from you that size 12 would be made and repeated promises that you would discuss casting with me, none of these promises ever fulfilled, I have come to the conclusion that my only recourse is to state my case in a letter. If this does not bring any concrete results, I have come to the reluctant conclusion that I will have to leave RKO before Harriet Parsons and Size 12 become the laughingstock of the industry if they are not already. No important star or agent takes me seriously anymore in connection with this picture. Your treatment of me has been pretty shabby, Howard, in many ways. You persist in discussing my projects with my mother instead of me, despite the fact that I have been making pictures for 20 years, am the only active woman producer in Hollywood and the only woman member of the Screen Producers Guild, and despite the fact that it was not my mother who produced The Enchanted Cottage, I Remember Mama, Clash by Night, etc. Hughes was not against giving women creative power. He greenlit most of Ida Lupino's directorial efforts. And at first, he and Harriet were on good terms. But Hughes's legendary mismanagement of RKO led to chaos on the lot. And by 1955, Harriet was not only the only woman in the Producers Guild, she was the only producer of any gender on contract at RKO. Hughes had kept her under contract in order to stay on Luella's good side without making much of an effort to support Harriet at all. By 1956, both Hughes and Harriet had moved on. After leaving RKO, Harriet attempted to produce on Broadway, but her first show flopped, and she didn't try to mount another. In the 1960s, she went back to work with her mother, co-writing Luella's column. Ultimately, Harriet retired to Palm Springs with a dancer named Evelyn Farney. At some point, Harriet legally adopted Farney, and many writers have simply referred to Farney as Harriet's daughter. But Farney was only 10 years younger than Harriet, and the adoption didn't happen until both were in middle age, after both women had been divorced. Farney had been married for a short time to another gay male journalist, Lee Graham. I'm just speculating here, but the adoption may have been a way for Parsons to create a legal link between herself and her long-term partner, so that Farney could serve as Harriet's next of kin. Farney, who died in 2006, donated Harriet's scrapbooks to the Academy Library after Harriet's death in 1983. So much of what Luella and Hedda did ultimately made movies worse. Whether it was celebrating the birth of a nation while demonizing Orson Welles and Charlie Chaplin, or all the ways they promoted commercialism and conservatism and kept movies from advancing artistically or evolving with the culture. So it's such a joy to discover that Harriet Parsons was a pioneer, not just in terms of her gender, but also in terms of the progressive ideas and the authentic human emotions she made sure were baked into the movies she produced. 
If you watch one movie mentioned this season, make it Night Song. It's rentable from pretty much every digital platform that lets you rent movies. Next week, we'll talk about another queer pioneer in 1950s Hollywood, one who became a major competitor to Luella and Hedda during the Hollywood blacklist. That period represented the peak of Hedda Hopper's influence as a gossip columnist and as an accessory to the political manipulations of J. Edgar Hoover. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests. Julie Klausner played Luella Parsons. Julie wrote, created, and starred in Difficult People, one of the funniest shows of the last 10 years, which you can watch on Hulu. And she and Tom Sharpling have a podcast called Double Threat, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. Hedda Hopper is played by Cole Escola. Cole can be seen in Search Party, At Home with Amy Sedaris, and their self-produced special, Help, I'm Stuck. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch, like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. You can also support the podcast on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes and my monthly media log. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find the show. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new story from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night,